diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Robert DiNapoli about his new book, The Gnostic Hotel. Welcome, Bob. Oh, thank you, Di. Now, Bob, you are a, um, an academic and a poet and a translator and a medievalist. And we last spoke about your book, Reading Old English Literature, The Fetters in the Frost. But this book here is uh, a work of your own creative inspiration. It's your own poetry. So tell me a little bit about your own uh, poetical work. Have you been writing poetry all your life? Or? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, I discovered T.S. Eliot when I was about 18 years old and decided... That's the job for me, and uh, I haven't managed it yet, but, you know, that's no blame. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe not as a job, but certainly as uh, creative output, some very impressive work in uh, in this book. Oh, um, thank you. So it's called The Gnostic Hotel, and in the introduction you reflect on some elements of Gnosticism and Anthroposophy. For mm-hmm. anyone who is not familiar with those terms, mm-hmm. can you tell us all a little bit about both of them? Okay, well, Gnosticism is an ancient tradition, and Anthroposophy is a very new tradition in historical terms. Gnosticism covers a lot of ground. There are many Gnosticisms. But what they all have in common is basic sense of life on earth as a condition of spiritual alienation. It's a tradition that has spoken to a lot of modern thinkers for kind of obvious reasons. And, you know, the condition of existential angst that so many moderns uh, have to negotiate. And um, it varies the theologies of more mainstream traditions. So the, the... There are Jewish Gnostic traditions, there are Christian Gnostic traditions, and even Islamic ones. Probably the Christian Gnostic variation will be the most approachable for most of your listeners. And that one basically takes the fundamental theology of Christianity and turns it on its head, where the story of the creation in Genesis is a uh, a story of disaster, where the God who creates Adam by blowing his breath, his spirit, into clay um, is actually imprisoning it there so that, you know, we are souls meant to live elsewhere who have been trapped in the cellars of creation, basically, uh, at, at the material level. And we are haunted by the fact that we belong elsewhere and can't quite put our finger on it. And so, you know, through 
aspiration, study, who knows, maybe even writing poetry. You know, we can find our way back up out of the pit, as it were, to achieve at least a broader view, if nothing else. Right. And you were saying to me earlier that there's a kind of a good God and a bad God in, uh, mm. in Gnosticism. So the, the bad God is the God who blew his breath into clay, but mm. there's another God well, yeah. outside of that God. Yeah, the, the bad God is called the Demiurge. I mentioned him briefly in my, in my introduction, and that basically in Gnosticism translates as con man, a trickster, uh, if you like. And he's in the Christian tradition, Gnostic tradition, he's effectively a fallen angel who gets delusions of grandeur and decides that he is God. And to prove it, he's going to create a cosmos just like the real God already did and uh, and he makes a hash of it basically but he can't let anyone realize that so he's constantly trying to uh, distract us from the fact that it's not a very clever creation and did the authentic god who's outside of the creative process mm-hmm. have a name uh yeah the unknown god <laughs> so and in hebrew what was that oh i couldn't tell you okay. off, off the top of my head sure the texts come down in lots of different uh, ancient languages. A lot of them are in Greek. Oh, okay. Um, more than in Hebrew, even, I believe. Right. I mean, in Central Asia, there was a philosophy of Manichaeism, which mm. um, identified a good God and a bad God. Is it a bit similar? Very similar, yeah. Whether the two traditions actually intersected all is a different question that I'm not prepared to pronounce no, on. But, um, but, but, yeah, they, they definitely do have a lot in common. Uh, right. Okay. And you also mention in your introduction that you, there's some influence from Rudolf Steiner's yes. philosophy of anthroposophy. Mm-hmm. Would you tell tell the listener a little bit about that? Very briefly. He was a, a German polymath, really. The guy could do just about everything. And... Um, he lect- what he did most of all was lecture, <laughs> thousands and thousands of lectures, uh, many of which have been transcribed and published. But he began anthroposophy basically as an offshoot of uh, more or less Madame Blavatsky's theosophy. And it was really to distinguish itself from theosophy that the term anthroposophy was coined by Steiner. And um, in the way that theosophy means God wisdom, Anthroposophy means human wisdom. And Steiner's take, look, it's impossible to summarize, but uh, very, very briefly, it's simply that human existence is effectively a spiritual phenomenon, first and foremost, that, again, we are incarnate spirits that, that have taken shape and footed the earth in physical form. And for Steiner, that's neither good nor bad. That's just a fact of, of the circumstance. And... He also posits, uh, in common with various Eastern traditions, patterns of reincarnation, multiple lifetimes, so that basically the spirit learns to find its way around down here by having a number of different goes at it across different lifetimes. There's so much more to it that we could be here yeah, all week and, and not, not get to the end of it but that's uh, that's a really really basic frame sure i mean to my mind they sound quite different but never mind let's mm. see how you manage to put them together okay. in your book <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> so i'd like to begin with a fairly autobiographical poem mm-hmm. which is called 
by the waters of Babylon. Mm-hmm. So would you like to read that? Yes, yeah, certainly. We're going to do the first two parts of it. It's a multi-part poem. And the first is called The Babylonian Exile, subtitled A Verrazzano Narrows Meditation. And I explain that a little bit in a brief paragraph that I'll, I'll give you here. Palmanoc is a native name for Long Island, the fish-shaped island that carries the New York City boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens in its head, and halfway along its belly, the township of Babylon, where I was born in 1957 and where Walt Whitman taught at a local high school in 1835 to 1836. That's not terribly relevant, but I had to put it in. Yeah. Uh, Whitman makes frequent use of Palmanoc to name Long Island in his Leaves of Grass. The Verrazzano Narrows Bridge was the world's longest suspension bridge when it was completed in 1964. It joins Brooklyn to the separate island borough of Staten Island and is the route off Long Island for travelers to the mid-Atlantic east coast of the United States. In 1978, I crossed it on my way to begin the rest of my life off the island where I first hit the ground. So, the Babylonian Exile. I fell to earth in Babylon, Long Island, not the ancient Mesopotamian state, just a major commuter terminus along the south shore of fish-shaped Pomenoc, out of Penn Station, changing at Jamaica as often as not. I grew up there and left for parts unknown, to me and mine at least, for reasons sound but later open to doubts, study and love primarily, none of which fell out quite as I'd planned, but that's okay. Where else should I be but where I am? But now I've made a half-turn round the world. Its bulk looms large between my then and now. And some days I reflect on all I've left so far away. Family and friends, of course, but other things as well. Identities I bore for certain spells and put aside. Personae strung upon a golden thread, stretched like the Verrazzano Narrows Bridge, its hither pier sunk in my infant squalls, its span arched over clutching fingers of cloud, thrumming, tensed against its farther end, as winds from off the ocean's boundless reach bow melodies upon its length that sing, of the home my fall left dwindling between my heels. Lovely, yeah. So there's a certain nostalgia in in that uh, reflection on where you fell to earth. Yeah, well, there's there's recollection and and serious recollection, the sense of recollection, uh, in terms of pondering the selves that you have worn because. For all of us, there have been many. Uh, we're not the same person from birth to death. And we pass through different stages. We, we put on different identities. We put them off. And stringing them like lights on a suspension bridge over, over a great divide is, part of the, I think, part of the process of recollection that is central to whatever soul building we do in, in the course of our life on Earth. I like the way you say, I reflect on all I've left so far away, family and friends, of course, but other things as well. Identities I bore for certain spells and put aside, personae 
strung upon a golden thread, stretched like the Veretsano Narrows Bridge. It's a, it's a great way to represent that transition across a lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you can only be who you are in the moment. Yes. But true. you cannot keep out of your memory the crowd of other moments and other selves that you pass through. Yeah, that's right. Let's move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, this is part two, early morning departure lounge. These are the hours of darkness, these the times dispatching us with swift efficiency towards some end we can't anticipate, the eastern glow, a dawn or furnace mouth. We hear the rumble of machinery beneath our feet, the travelators hum as rollers pass below the walkways flat. From terminal to terminal we glide, in transit over lands debatable, where neither monsters nor enchanters be, where voices, after babble, polyglot, inform us quietly of gates and states, the weathers of this space that owns no sky, but feeds us one by one to its domain. So the departure lounge is a metaphor for life itself, is it? I, it certainly can be taken that way. Right. Um, I was just reflecting on... You know, I think I wrote this in a year where I did a lot of traveling, and so I spent many hours cooling my heels in, de- in departure lounges and humming along on travelators in, yes. in various airports around the world. Yes. And it's a fascinatingly in-between state where you're neither upstairs nor down. Yep. Uh, everybody's from somewhere else, and so it does become a lot like life in that we are all passing through. N- no one's final home yes. is here. Yes, the Tibetan word for an in in between state uh-huh. is bardo. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, and in, a, in in one of the Tibetan traditions, the period between birth and death is called the bardo of this life, as well as the period from death to the next life is mm-hmm. the bardo of dying and so on, bardo of becoming. There's a couple of bardos, but anyway, so um, that's a digression. Mm-hmm. So interesting poem. Um, I'd like now to move to the end times etiquette. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your inspiration behind this one. Oh, it's basically Christian apocalypticism, more or less. And I, I guess a small autobiographical note here. When I first went to university, I was very young. At 17, I'd skipped a year in high school, or primary school, actually, and graduated at 17 and went straight to university and um, was a bit in over my head and wound up finding companionship with a campus ministry, more or less, that got me introduced to evangelical biblical literalism, which hadn't been part of my background at all. You know, I was a classic Italian-American Catholic from Long Island. You go to church on Christmas and Easter, and then you're done, uh, more or less. And um, I, I took to it quite enthusiastically for 18 months or so. And uh, it, it slowly grew off me, or I slowly grew off it, but with great affection on both sides. You know, it did something for me that I needed in, at the time in terms of opening me up to possibilities beyond the merely material and the merely mechanical in how the world works. And I've always treasured that, even if it's modified for me time and time and time again since then. And uh, obviously, as an American, with some inside experience of the evangelical mindset, watching what's happened to it, because this was back in 1974, and all the 
evangelicals I was hanging out with, they were university Jesus freak lefty evangelicals that wouldn't hurt a fly, more or less. You know, and this was just before the right wing. The moral uh, majority. The moral, yeah, they, 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 they were on the horizon then, but, mm. but they weren't there yet. Mm. And I got out just in time, more or less. But I have remained both fa- fascinated and horrified by what's befallen that culture since. Yeah. I mean, it's got an honorable history, but not, a, not recently is <laughs> the best I can. I think I remember you once telling me that uh, that short period of evangelical engagement meant that you read the Bible all the way through and became very familiar with it. I think I felt I needed to read it all the way through. I'm not sure I actually managed it to tell you the truth oh, okay. <laughs> on the one hand. That's a noble aspiration that is, is rarely met, uh, to tell you the truth. But um, it did set me up to become a medievalist. Uh, I, I was ahead of the game when, when that happened some years later because I knew my way around. Anyway, so let's get to end times etiquette. Okay, and this begins with a short biblical passage from the Gospel of Matthew in the translation of Tyndale which um, I'm not going to try and do original pronunciation on, but I'll, I'll read it quickly because it sets up what the poem is about. And this is Matthew 24, verses 23 to 24. Then if man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there is Christ, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall give great signs and wonders, so greatly that if it were possible, even the chosen should be brought into error. Okay, that, that's Tyndale's warning, and then this is where I take off from it in end times etiquette. The trick is not to found some doomsday cult, but walk beneath this dimming sun and give what good you can to those whose paths cross yours. Avoid the hoo-ha, keep your own voice calm, so many different generations braid The end of days had caught them by the scruff. But, to be honest, today has copped the look, as believers throw themselves beneath the wheels of the latest demagogues bus, or gog-magogs. A death wish rattles in our culture's throat, the hubbub fanned and spread by Facebook meme, chicken little, eyes glued to the sky, bolts straight toward the fox's gaping maw. That's not to say no fractures chip the blue, or Raynar pass the wire is just fake news. Something's up, but no one's got a clue how rough a beast is slouching even now toward its date with brick wall destiny. To call it self-fulfilling prophecy is true, but no one's listening, those least who egg it on by fervor or design, too busy machinating or praise-guarding, to see their car has veered the wrong way around, accelerating down toward that brink. The profiteers peel off with pockets lined, while true believers steal for rapturous flight beyond the reach of gravity or fact, superbly unaware how eerily that boofhead clown to whom they've lent the wheel has mastered the arts of an apprentice beast. Yes, so, wow. And did you have any particular boofhead clown in mind? Oh, I don't know. Do you know any good boofhead clown? <laughs> Maybe an orange one. Oh, very orange indeed. Yeah, yeah, the Oompa Loompa. Yeah, no, I, I had to get him in there because what has fascinated me about that phenomenon above all else is how 
the evangelical right took to Trump in such a big way, yes. you know, because he answered some of their cultural resentments and objections to the way modernity had gone, and he promised to do something about that, whatever that, whatever that might be. So they took to him in a big way, but then everything that has come out about him, you know, has pointed in a diametrically opposite direction to everything that there's in their moral majoritarian way they're supposed to stand for. And in fact, in terms of leading the believers on a merry dance in the way that Tyndale was, uh, well, the Gospel of Matthew was warning about in Tyndale's translation, I'm not the first person to say he'd be a pretty good, pretty good candidate for Antichrist. And they've, you know, and the scriptures themselves say this great beast that's going to come at the end is going to fool some of the believers and have them believing him. And, you know, the people most obsessed about who's the Antichrist are the ones who are following the best candidate, as far as I can see. I mean, when I converted, we were playing the same games of who's going to be the Antichrist, and we all thought it was going to be Henry Kissinger. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> you know? Well, I, mean, you know, I think he's a candidate. Oh, I, you know, I, 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 I haven't struck him from the list <laughs> by any means. But just, just the way Trump has, you know, Pied Piper fashion, uh, Swallowed the whole of America largely. Yeah, well, that that side yeah. of America in, yeah. in in a big way is certainly startling and just a little bit alarming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's funny how people can, by following a particular philosophy, you know, look for a messianic figure, and then end up with the wrong messiah. Yeah, and and this is one of the things this poem is about overall. That mm. you know, if you desperately want to find something you're going to find it, mm. whether it's there or not. Yeah, and, yes. and that's the tricky bit, you know, the way you can project your own desires and, and wish fulfillment fantasies onto whatever's put in front of you. But I think the thing that's beyond belief is that after the January 6th attack on mm. the Congress, that his followers still follow him. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that shows they've really left their rationality outside the door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's it's just it's not the game you thought it was, is is part of it. You know, like, like the ground keeps changing under everyone's feet. To tell you the truth, you right. know. Um, I mean, we don't want to go here, but you know, I'll just name him. Rupert Murdoch has a lot to answer for in all of this as well, in terms of warping the media background to it all. Yes, um, yes. But that that that's a whole other issue. Yeah. So the next poem I'd like you to read and and we can discuss is uh, blowback. Now, when I read this, I was really struck by the idea of people who had died, the spirit somehow hanging on in this world and influencing the minds of people in the present and then the people in the present acting in a backward-looking way. And, I mean, the reference point for me for that would be something like, you know, the Boris Johnson and the whole disaster that is English politics. But... um, Tell me something about the ideas behind blowback, and did I understand you correctly? Yes, you certainly did. It has lots of different dimensions to it, of course, but the primary one is simply that of souls from modern media who, by and large, have not been educated in particularly profound spiritual traditions, let's put it that way, where the default assumptions of modern modernity in the developed world are pretty much 
19th century materialism, more or less. Straight cause and effect on a material level, and spirit is a nice story, but uh, don't bother me with it, kid. Uh, more or less is what it comes down to. Those souls, then, when they are find themselves deposited in whatever comes next, I'm not, I'm not making any after big claims, this after this, uh, uh, this life, are completely disoriented because they have no preparation for what they're going to find. And different traditions talk about that in different ways, you know, that everything's back to front, perspectives are reversed in all sorts of ways, and the poem goes into that to a certain extent. But the other side of it, too, is that these bereft souls, you know, that have come completely unprepared into a totally alien, for them, circumstance, are desperate to find a foothold somewhere. Um, I've likened it to people thrown into rough water with no preparation. Of course, they're going to scrabble back towards whatever dry land they can see behind them, and that's basically our minds, more or less, so that you get this pull from presences, you know, who are well, obviously not evidently present, present but I think their, their psyches bear on ours in ways that can distort the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, uh, that we think are our own, solely, but maybe not entirely, and and that tussle, yeah, of, you know, passed on souls trying to get back while we're just trying to get on uh, with life here results in the many confusions that that beset modern life, I think. Right, so, I mean, we're talking about souls that have passed on, so in, in a sense the conventional word is ghost, but you're not talking about ghosts. No, it's more about presences and influences, I guess, would be the terminology I would use. That's, right. a, that's a little bit more abstract, but, but you know, ghost is fine. <laughs> All right, yeah. great. Well, let's, let's read Blowback. Okay, Blowback. With countless dragon's teeth, the earth's been sown. The dead, untimely or unjustly slain, thrust unawares into the ether zone, Bewildered by new night's appalling rain that sluiced the sun from heaven's capsized vault, reversed the fabric of reality, and left their senses dazed by an assault that turns each convex to concavity. Near and far trade places, up and down, turn all upon its head. The sudden dead of our empiric age lack means to sound the contours they encounter, no sure lead hangs taut to point out toes to swimming thought. And your own words come spoken from afar, while others well up from within unsought. Time and space uncoupled, doors ajar. Baffled by this plunge from some to none, they scrabble at the unfamiliar scree and hunger for the rise and fall of sun, with drowning swimmers' terror turn to flee. They sense the living in a veiling mist, but yearning only drives them further off. Our own indifference tightens a cruel twist of matter's blunt, indifferent shrug and scoff. Our ignorance admits them to our minds, like burglars forcing windows unsecured. They blunder past our darkened, shuttered blinds, impersonating thoughts we're self-assured took shape within our heads, and thus they press our moods and will into conformity with their unfocused terrors, leaving us a prey 
to bitter whim, gratuity of unexamined will, not wholly ours, ensures our best-laid plans gang after glee, and few anticipate what evil flowers might sprout from seeds they sowed with best degree of prudent forethought, whose outcomes will complete the circle, pitching more across the brink, whose wills press back on ours. There's no retreat. We reap as we have sown. That simple link we cannot apprehend and blunder on through thickets dense with unmoored consequence. The karmic blowback, rumbling thunder on our each horizon, warping our intents. Well, wonderful poetry. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. So I've been talking to Bob DiNapoli about his brand new book, The Gnostic Hotel, and published by Little Fox Press, and it's available from you directly. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So if you're interested, you can contact Bob at bob.dinapoli at yahoo.com.au. So thank you for coming in. That's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a lovely book and full of extraordinary ideas and beautiful imagery and uh, a very original voice. Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Okay, we will do. Yeah. So my name is Di Cousins and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.